I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Yeah, why are more members of Congress not banging the table on this? And I have a hunch. I mean, it has something to do with the performative aspects you talked about. Yeah, I watch these. Um, I'm seeing all these campaign ads right now. And everyone's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that because you have no power to do it. They're, the system isn't designed to let you do that. And, and you asked, well, why don't the um, um, members of Congress, well, you know, why don't they talk about this? And, and the, the sad truth is that the majority of them prefer this system. And, you know, just to go through that a little bit, when you think about it, it's actually a pretty easy life for them. Okay, they... They come to Congress, if they um, bend the knee for leadership and just say, we'll go along with whatever show you're doing, you know, you're putting on the Democrat show or you're putting on the Republican show or whatever, we'll go along with it. As long as they, um, you know, play along and do the performance, they are taken care of, they're babied. As of now, when this episode airs, it'll be essentially six months since the first stimulus check went out. And it's been radio silence from our... Not radio silence because they're talking, but radio silence in terms of action from our Congress since... Tell me your thoughts. I know you're pissed off. One of you vocal people out here, what are you thinking? I'm looking at the calendar, Zach, and it's scaring the heck out of me because if you don't get a relief bill passed now... And then let's say Trump loses. Let's say the election shakes out over a number of days. It's going to be next to impossible to get a lame duck duck Congress to pass a stimulus bill uh, before the end of the year. And so then you're waiting until a new administration gets seated January 21. You're looking at February for any kind of relief bill to get passed. And then you're also seeing it's not like relief goes out instantaneously. Um, so you could be looking at mid to late February by the time people receive uh, checks, benefits, uh, anything that's going to help keep small business open, etc. So right now it's mid-October. You're talking about November, December, January, February, possibly three to four months for people to get relief. And if you look at that landscape and then you say, wait a minute, right now their incentives are sky high to try and get a bill done because... Mm-hmm. Trump's trying to get reelected. Uh, Trump's been signaling, yes, let's do a big stimulus. Uh, if Mnuchin and Pelosi come to terms on a deal, then Senate Republicans, led by Mitch McConnell, are really going to be in a tough spot saying no. Because like, uh, you know, at this point, the president's signing off. The president's looking at you like, hey, you've been with me uh, through thick or thin. Like, are you really going to keep us from passing relief for your constituents right ahead of your election too, election. Uh, so the leverage is at its highest right now. 
and if you miss the window then we could be going through an entire long horrendous winter uh, where people don't have money for heating oil don't have money for rent don't have uh, the ability to provide for themselves in uh, communities around the country so I am mad uh, it's disgusting what is going on frankly that uh, our government has fallen asleep with the switch to this degree and it's frankly to me a bit bizarre that more people are not upset about it on the public level there are a lot of americans who are upset about it. i hear from them every day i'm upset about it um but you you don't have tons of folks coming out and saying yo we need to get this deal done um on the democratic side um and i came out and said it and yep. And then, you know, some, some people, I've seen some of the feedback, were like, hey, why blame Nancy, blame Mitch? It's like, look, uh, I think Mitch should get his ass to the table, too. Uh, but if you look at the dynamics of this negotiation, Nancy's in the driver's seat at this point. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's on Mnuchin, it's on Mitch, it's on uh, Nancy Pelosi, um, but it's on, it's on all of them. And right now... Uh, if you're Nancy Pelosi, I believe that you are the key driver of saying yes or saying no, because Trump's offer or Mnuchin's offer with Trump of $1.8 trillion is vanishing close to the $2 trillion level that you set. Um, now, there are some elements of that $1.8 trillion that you can rightfully object to. You can say, look, a liability shield for corporates uh, around coronavirus is wrong. Uh, you could say that the makeup of the $1.8 trillion uh, is not what we want. You can say there's mm -hmm. not enough of this, not enough of that. But you are close. Uh, and at, at this point, you should be moving heaven and earth to try and find a deal that you would find acceptable because the alternative is is months of desperation and deprivation for millions, tens of millions of Americans. This is one of those rare moments, I think, where there's a lot of time these political spats don't actually affect the average American, you know? Like, even some of the Obamacare stuff, like, not everyone, not the entire country was, you know, affected by Obamacare, essentially. I mean, we were, in, like, you know, transentially, um, tangentially and things like that. But this is one of those rare moments, to me, where the political spat um, between, let's call it the president the head of the Republicans, head of the Democrats, is now directly impacting the entire American population. Not only the millions of Americans suffering, but putting cash in these hands will also have the, to your point, like the trickle-up effect on the rest of the economy, right? Like, get us, start rallying back. Andrew, why, why does this happen? You know, like, is it, you know, we talk a bit with our guest today, Justin Amash, um, but in your opinion, like, why are we, like, I don't think Nancy... Is a, I mean, Mitch might be a bad person, and Trump seems to only care about himself. But I don't think Nancy is a bad person at all. I um, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, we only know her loosely. Um, why, why does this? Why does this happen? Why are we putting politics over party? Is it because of the election? Like, are Democrats that terrified of giving Trump any sort of W to blow Biden's chances? What do you think? Uh, you can't know what the calculation is, uh, but it sure seems like politics has an awful lot to do with it. Like, it, yeah. it, it sure seems like. Um, one of the reasons why it's so hard to make a deal right now is that we don't want to give Trump a, a W uh, right before election day, which I think is absolutely the wrong approach. I think this election is baked. I don't think everyone's going to turn around and uh, have like a massive change of heart if a check with yeah. Trump's name comes. The check's already late. No one's going to be like, thank God he gave it to me. Everybody's going to be about time, asshole. Sorry. 
It, you know, you know. <laughs> I mean, in many cases, the check's probably not going to get there until after voting is done anyway. I mean, yeah, true. Like, like over 11 uh, million Americans have already voted, so it's clearly not going to affect their vote. Right. Um, people would be grateful to every to Democrats, Republicans, um, uh, alike. Uh, and your first purpose is to address the needs of the American people. Politic damned. Um, so to me, if there is a political calculation going on here, uh, it is a, a real disservice to the American people, especially again, given the way the calendar lays out. Right. So I'm going to shift the gears a little bit, but, um, cause I think it brings up an interesting point based on what happened this week. So you, you called on speaker Pelosi, um, and said, Nancy Pelosi, like, take this deal, like, let's go. Um, and you and Ro Khanna, I think are the only Democrats to say let's do this um republicans have been a mixed bag um you know but they've been pretty silent as well um and you got on twitter at least which is not real life um but even publicly in, in general conversation some people are attacking you um and saying you're not falling in line or how dare you speak ill of the in general in general conversation it's... yeah <laughs> when i was out on the street someone said hey what's that guy screw you andrew but um but like i'm more curious on to me, most of our every time you're attacked online, um, whether it's on the campaign or after, it, it comes from the left. You know, it usually comes from the left side of the party, like right wing attack you all the time. But more than more on like ideological differences, Republicans and Dems are just trolling you. Like the Republicans love to troll the, the liberals. Um, but when you get hit on like character things, it's usually coming from the left, which always bothered me because anyone who spends in my opinion, 30 seconds listening to you, you're clearly an ally. You're a human being. No one's perfect, but you're clearly on, you know, the Democrat team on like pro humanity, like that sort of thing. Like what, why does this happen? Is this, to me, it's like a social media, like, uh, like, like, and maybe a scarcity mindset you talk about a lot. That's like the simple answer to me. I don't, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on why the hell you get beat up from your own party all the time? Um, when you clearly, anyone who actually listens to you, you're clearly a Democrat, right? Um, first, I don't think I do get beat up a, a whole lot. Like, I, it's not like oh, yeah, I don't even imply it's every day. Sorry, it's once in a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to be clear. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, part part of the reason why, like, uh, you know, I think I've got a perspective on this is that, like, I, I don't really think that um, a relatively small number of people on Twitter or social media reflects the point of view of the average American. All. Like the average Americans is looking up saying, I'm in the 82% of Americans who think our government should actually be helping us out uh, somewhat during this pandemic. Why aren't they doing that? Like, th that's the basic point of view of the American people. Yeah. Uh, if, if someone has a different point of view, then, you know, I, I'm just like, well, you should probably talk to like some of the 82%. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, a, yeah. I think this is a no brainer. Um, and, and so I don't really take it to heart. Um, no, I think there's a natural tendency that if you're excited about your leaders or a particular set of people and then someone calls them into question or doubt, then it's like, uh, you know, just a natural um, defend the leader, screw you impulse. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like it, it's happened uh, um, in the other direction, too, where if someone criticized me, then there are folks who jump to my defense. Uh, and, and sometimes they're even overzealous in that defense. A little bit. Sorry, Yang Gang. You guys can be a little crazy. <laughs> And and so that so that that I think that's just a natural dynamic um, that um, that comes through in politics. Uh, it's something I try not to subscribe to because I just think it's um, 
a pointless distraction a lot of the time, but uh, I think it's just a natural tendency that gets amplified. It's one of the things I'll say that was really hard to keep perspective on because we, we were not politicians. We were not in politics. We came in as outsiders. And when you live and breathe, like in the pundit world, where you're living and breathing everything, the president's doing everything, the senators and Congress are doing, you forget that the average American doesn't give a shit. Like the average American is not paying attention to this at all, right? Um, it's why usually the big macro trends are big, are really great indicators of a presidential election, whether it's the economy or whether it's a change election or not, because the average American is just trying to put food on the table. And to your point, a lot of them are suffering. Um, don't have time to read Trump's tweet of the day or care about XYZ you know, news article or whatever the Republicans or the Dems are angry about on a daily basis. So I think most people don't give a shit. And I think you, um, I mean, they care, but they don't, they don't follow this the way we kind of have to when you're thrown into the fire, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like it or not, we're kind of uh, professionals at, at this point. And one of the things that we have to do is, um, get pulled out and try and have like a regular person's point of view. I think this is why we don't have a stimulus deal is that when you're in the thick of it, then certain things make sense that wouldn't make sense if you were just like a, a man or woman on the street. Right. It's a good segue um, to our episode today. And I'm, so I'm going to make a bold statement. So we have um, congressman and I guess retiring congressman, right? He's um, not running for reelection, but Justin Amash, he's a independent libertarian. Um, but I'm going to make a bold statement here. I think this was a top five Yang speaks convo. I think this, at least, I mean, for me personally, but I'm going to say for the general population in terms of how much you will learn in listening to this episode about how our government works. This blew my mind. And I haven't learned this much in like a 30, 40 minute window in, in a while. I don't know what you thought. It was very relevant to our conversation right now about why we don't have yeah. a relief bill. I learned a ton too. And uh, it was not, it was not a lot of feel good learning. It was, <laughs> it was a little dark. I mean, you feel good to learn. Uh, you feel good <laughs> to learn because, you know, you'd rather um, ha have that insider perspective um did not have yeah. it but whoa were you like wow um, that's how it works yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's how it works or it doesn't work here's what i'd say is like i think it's a really interesting moment because how often do you get his perspective i don't think you ever do in the sense that he's he's an independent so he's he's, he's not a republican or democrat he's young he's 40 years old he's leaving congress after being there he's experienced he's been there for 10 years not like he was there for one term he was there for a decade um, and then he's not like kicked out, you know what I'm saying? He's like choosing not to, to stay and not to run. So there's no bitterness. It's not old and cranky. Like you have this young, interesting perspective on how Congress works without the vitriol of being angry that you lost your election or that sort of thing. So it seemed to me, it felt very honest and true. And I don't think we don't often get that voice. You know what I'm saying? That perspective that I don't think that exists anywhere right now. This was a novel perspective for me, for sure. And I hope people enjoy it. Uh, Justin has a very important role to play in helping shine a light on some of the procedural and mechanical challenges we have with our government that end up translating into substance. Uh, you know, like there, there's a thought that Americans have no patience to hear about process, but I think that we're smarter than that. I think we actually 
want to hear about process when it keeps us from being able to actually solve any problems, pass any laws, make uh, any kind of progress. It's one reason why I'm going to bat for ranked choice voting and these other procedural reforms I think are so important because I, I think that they're going to translate into our politics and our substance. And, and Justin, I believe, has a similar perspective on the inner workings of Congress having been there for 10 years. Yeah. If we run again, you know, we'd have, we'd be focused on the process and the reform and that stuff, which is an a lot of that stuff's not sexy. It's like campaign finance reform and ranked choice voting and that stuff. So, Yang Gang, if you're listening or anyone listening to this, tweet at me or Andrew. I'm open for sexy taglines for another run that makes ranked choice voting and some of the process stuff uh, appealing to the masses. So, crowdsourcing ideas uh, right now. No guarantee we're running for anything, but, you know. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's I mean, you learned this, right? Everybody, like UBI, whether it's cash payments or gun control or climate change most americans agree we can't pass anything it's because of what justin is talking about this podcast is sponsored by helix sleep i've always been a mattress guy because i figured if i'm gonna do something for up to eight hours maybe i should do it right and helix sleep Let's you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the lone libertarian member of Congress, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and the, the lone member of the Republican Party at the time to break from his party when it came to impeachment. Uh, someone I've been excited to catch up with, also recent presidential candidate uh, as a libertarian, Justin Amash. Justin, welcome. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Oh, uh, appreciate your being here. Uh, and you and I, uh, I feel like we have a lot in common you know, I was looking at your background where you're the son of immigrants. Uh, you went to, you're the, so one thing you were not, uh, you, you did, which I would like, didn't come, come close to You were valedictorian of your high school, which I thought was very impressive. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And then went to Michigan and Michigan law school. Uh, and then you were, you were a state legislator before joining Congress. Um, like when did you know that you were wanted to head to DC? Um, it was kind of late in life, actually. I mean, in terms of my my youth, at least late in my youth, it's not like I was thinking from when I was, you know, 14, 15, hey, I want to go to Congress or anything like that. It wasn't like a high school dream of mine to, to be in Congress or, or be in public office. But um, 
after I'd gotten through law school, I started working as a lawyer and it and became, it sucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It became it became clear to me that this is not what I wanted to keep doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I was working as a, uh, a business lawyer, so I was writing contracts, um, you know, working on um, yeah corporate matters, basically. And it wasn't the kind of thing where I was interacting with a lot of people. It was it was a lot of um, sitting in a room and doing research and um, drafting things. And I was looking at the um, Michigan government, and it struck me that in Michigan, uh, the two parties were actually voting alike in so many ways that were harmful, and then they were still fighting about you know which party was better. And I thought that it was important to have someone run for office as an independent-minded person. So I said, hey, I'm going to go for this. And I'm going to be very independent. I'm not going to line up with uh, my party completely, even though I, w- I was a Republican at the time. I said, I'm going to go there and, and vote the way I believe is right, um, according to what I told my constituents I would do. And I went and did that, and people liked it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was the opposite of what people tell you, which is that you have to stick with your party on everything and people won't like you otherwise. No, people did like it when I was independent um, as a state representative. They they applauded it, and that's how they sent me to Congress, actually, because after one term of doing that in the state house, um, I had uh, enough support from people around the area here that they said, "Yeah, let's send this guy to Congress and let's have him shake up uh, things in Congress." Now, Congress is a very different creature in many ways than the state legislature. So um, the dynamic is very different, and some of the stuff that works in the state house in terms of independence doesn't work so well in Congress. But that's basically how I how I got involved. Well, this is what I want to hear all about. I think millions of Americans want to hear about this. It's like Mr. Amash goes to Washington yeah. <laughs> because you you go you show up uh, almost ten years ago now in 2011. Um, uh, as someone who wants to make changes in various ways. And it looks like you will have done 10 years uh, by the time you, you depart. Uh, so tell us about this freaking arc, because I have a, my own perception of it from the outside looking in, where one of the statements you made more recently was about partisanship, where you said, look, at this point, there aren't that many members of Congress who are truly independent, uh, or who are doing anything more than rubber stamping the decisions and negotiations made by very senior leadership. Uh, and that's something that we're seeing play out right now with this stimulus relief bill, which yeah. the vast majority of Americans know there should be a bill. And sure, you know, that there, there can be disagreements about um, what, what it looks like. Uh, it seems unusual in the developed world for their to be such a clear need for relief and, and no relief uh, forthcoming. Um, so tell us about your arrival in Congress. I'm actually most interested, well, I'm, I'm interested in all of it, but I'm interested in like you're getting there and like what you found when you got there in terms of uh, the nature of the environment, the culture, like the collegiality or lack thereof, the bipartisanship or lack thereof, mm-hmm. <laughs> et cetera, yeah, it's et cetera. Just- 
it's such a different creature from the state legislature. And I can't speak for state legislatures across the country. And I can't even speak for the Michigan legislature now. I don't know what it's like now because I haven't been there in 10 years. But when I was there serving in the state legislature, I served as a Republican. And I was able to work with the Democrats rather easily. It, it wasn't a problem. In fact, um, Democrats controlled the House at the time. And I would go up to Democratic leadership and tell them, hey, there's something wrong with this bill. And guess what? They would pull it off the floor and say, hey, Amash thinks something's wrong with this bill. There's like some technical issue or there's some drafting problem or this will cause this unintended consequence. And they'd actually let me work with them on it. And then they'd bring it back after we'd fixed it. So um, there was a real collegiality that happened in the state legislature and maybe some of that is because it's a smaller body than than Congress. You know, we only had a, a 110 members in the state house versus 435 in Congress. Maybe that helps. Um, but I really think the main difference is that Congress has become uh, more of a um, an entertain entertainment venue. It's really just performance at this point, and that. Uh, puts a lot of barriers in the way of working together in a productive way. It, sure, people do work together um, from time to time, but usually when they're working together, it's something that was sort of um, inevitable. Like there's some big story in the news and then they do something that's kind of simple and um, you're going to get very little pushback on it. And those times they do work together. But you look at um, all sorts of issues uh, we deal with immigration issues or LGBTQ issues. There are issues where the two parties are almost intentionally not working together. In a sense, they're, um, they're trying to prevent the other side from agreeing with them in order to push it as a political message. So you will have uh, Democrats in control, for example, right now, who could get Republican buy-in on a lot of things, but the bill will be drafted in such a way and without the ability to amend it as well, without any real ability to amend it, drafted in such a way that they're not going to get Republican buy-in and then they can use it as a political issue. And Republicans do the exact same thing. They will push, and you see it right now in the Senate, um, but certainly when Republicans controlled the House, they will draft the bill in such a way that the Democrats just can't get on board because of some big issue, and they refuse to work with them on it because they want to keep it alive. So um, uh, criminal justice reform just recently after the George Floyd um, murder is a good example of this, where the two sides could have come together and worked on things in a bipartisan fashion and uh, maybe tackled some very discrete issues one at a time and gotten buy-in from both sides but instead, each side just was like, hey, we've got our package of stuff and we'll put a few things in here that the other side will absolutely not uh, agree with. And then we won't allow any amendments on it. And it's take it or leave it. And that's that. So then the House passes something, the Senate passes something, and then you get no resolution. We, yeah, we have to, that, as, that, that's yeah, as a another... Congress, we have, to, we have to be able to amend things and work together. That's an example that I'm not sure most Americans really reflect on that you had thousands of people protests, you, you had ma majority of the country say, look, we need some kind of police reform bill. You had members mm -hmm. of Congress come together and say, well, we need to do something here. 
and there has still not actually been any federal legislation passed because of what you just described. I'm not sure people really recognize the enormity of that statement for a moment yeah. because th- th- this is a level of passion and activism uh, and popular demonstration that uh, is certainly the the um, most unprecedented outpouring I've seen in years or more, decades, a generation perhaps. Uh, and the result so far has been nothing. Yeah. And I think people... People need to be willing to accept some uh, some truths that will hurt them personally. In other words, people are very invested in these two parties. Uh, there are Democrats who are very invested in the Democratic Party and Republicans who are very invested in the Republican Party. And they see their leaders, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or whoever it might be, as um, as sorts of heroes And they have to be willing to accept that some of these people at the top, including people that they revere, are not the heroes. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I don't know who you like or who you don't like. But what I'm telling you as a member of Congress, because I'm in there and I see it with my eyes. I can see it firsthand up close. There are leaders on both sides of the aisle. And people will say, oh, don't both sides stuff. Well, this this is the truth. This is the truth of what's wrong with Congress. There are leaders on both sides of the aisle who believe so strongly in the performative aspect of government. And their primary goal is to maintain the power they have through this performance. Uh, they're, they're more like Hollywood entertainers than anything else. And this is on both sides of the aisle, not just Democrats, not just Republicans. It's both Republicans and Democrats. And it really starts with the leadership teams. Um, I can assure you that we could have gotten something through the House Um, and through the Senate on criminal justice reform. But there wasn't really a desire to do so. And we have to reckon reckon with that, that that actually some of the people who are telling you, let's get things done, don't want the resolution because it's preferable to have it as a campaign issue or to, for example, not give Donald Trump the win on criminal justice reform. I mean, I think on on justice reform, uh, not everything, but there's a lot of stuff Trump would have just signed because I don't think he knows that much about policy or cares that much about policy. He just cares about the political wins. So you could have cra- you could have crafted some kind of compromise legislation if you were willing to do it as Nancy Pelosi, if you were willing to do it as Mitch McConnell. You could have crafted compromise legislation that President Trump would have signed, but each side had its own incentive for not getting it done. And therefore, the American people, it's hard to believe, don't have criminal justice reform following the George Floyd killing. We don't have it. We protested, as you mentioned, everyone was out there. I was out there rallying uh, with people in my district and we don't have any justice reform. I introduced a bill uh, on ending qualified immunity and we can't even get it on the House floor for a debate or a discussion. I'm not saying that um, just because I introduced a bill, it has to pass through Congress, but why can't we discuss it? Why can't we so, put it so on the what floor is the, and debate it? So in order to get it on the floor, does it need to be approved by a committee? It, it goes to a committee, but for the most part, the way Congress works and has worked for many years now is the Speaker of the House has to let it go through. If the Speaker says no, it's not moving. Um, the Speaker has amassed a tremendous amount of power. This 
probably started in the Gingrich days. This was before my time, of course, um, and has continued and has, has gotten, um, is, in, with successive speakers, has gotten worse. For example, during my time in Congress, John Boehner, a man I tried to oust from Congress, I tried to oust him from the speakership. I didn't want him as speaker anymore because I thought he was so bad. He actually ran a more open Congress than Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi. And that's hard to believe. Like if I could go back in time and say to, um, you know, past Justin Amash, hey, this is actually as good as it gets right now. I would have probably changed my approach to it and said, hey, I guess we, <laughs> we're going to stick with John Boehner for now. But I tried to oust him because I thought he was so bad. I mean, this is a guy who one time called me a terrorist. And I still, um, you know, think he was probably the best speaker um, we've had overall because he was he cared about uh, opening up the process uh, relative to his successors um, and it wasn't a super open process, but at least we could offer amendments on the House floor from time to time, and we don't have any of that now. So why do these bills get presented without the opportunity for amendment? It, is that because it sounds like that's a big part of the problem is that, well, hey, it's take it or leave it. And then you're like, well, I guess like if I can't change it, I'm going to have to say no to this thing. Uh, when did that yeah. become the norm? So um, until about 2016, May 2016, which is uh, while Paul, Paul Ryan was speaker, it was uh, the tradition of the House that uh, particularly, on, particularly on appropriations bills, so these are the spending bills, you had something called an open process where any member of the House could come to the House floor during the reading of the bill and offer an amendment. And as long as the amendment was germane to the bill, that member would get a vote on that amendment. So we would have votes on all sorts of things, especially, uh, like I said, on appropriations bills. And um, that, that was the tradition of the House for uh, you know, over 200 years. And then along comes Paul Ryan, and he says, you know, the Democrats are trying to put in these poison pill amendments. They are offering amendments that are causing um, our members to have really tough votes. And we don't want to have these tough votes. So what he told the Republican conference, because I was there at the, uh, when he announced this, he said, look, we're going to shut down the open process. Um, you guys can bring your amendments and present them to the rules committee. And I will allow a lot of amendments to go through and be voted on the floor, but I will be able to weed out the, the um, as he called them, you know, the, the dangerous or poison pill Democratic amendments. We can weed those out. And Republicans were sitting there in the room and they're like, yes, yes, let's do this. And I objected. I said, this is crazy. And first of all, he's telling you he's going to just weed out these, um, you know, poison pill amendments. He's going to weed out all sorts of amendments once, once this process starts. And what's the end game? So what happens when the Democrats are in charge? Then they're like, you know, ending Republican amendments. This is a, a dangerous game to play. And we shouldn't be doing this. We should have an open process. We are a, a body um, where we're supposed to discover the outcomes through the legislative process. But, you know, I lost that argument. And Republicans went forward with that. They shut down the amendment process. 
And Paul Ryan became the first speaker in the history of our country to have a whole term where we had no open amendments. In other words, there, there was never a piece of legislation during his whole term that he was speaker, the full, the, the full term he served as speaker, where we were allowed to go to the floor and offer an amendment. And Nancy Pelosi has carried that on. During her tenure as speaker, she has not allowed a single open process um, during her entire tenure as speaker, during this recent tenure. I, I can't speak for, for before. She must have allowed it before. But recently, she's followed the precedent set by Paul Ryan. And that's really bad for the American people. It's really, really bad. Um, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but it, it affects everything. It affects executive power, for example. Uh, I'll give you um, just just a... To flesh that out a little bit, if the president of the United States knows that he only has to negotiate with a couple people, it makes his job a lot easier. He can get what he wants a lot more easily than if he has to negotiate with the entire Congress. So you've just given the president a tremendous amount of leverage by closing down the process that the uh, framers of the Constitution never intended the president to have. He knows that he just has to send Steve Mnuchin, who's nowhere in Article 1, despite what, you know, there, there's no, like, um, investment banker in Article 1. That's not a, that's not a power. Um, so <laughs> the, the idea that we send Steve Mnuchin now out to negotiate legislation, the president does, and he only has to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, essentially, right? There's only two people he has to get it through because they run the whole show. Nobody else has any say. So as long as Pelosi signs on, basically you can count on about 240 representatives going along with her because she's the Speaker of the House and she's a Democrat. She says, yes, I approve it. They're going to approve it. And same with Mitch McConnell. He says, yes, I approve it. Basically, the Republicans will fall in line. So the president now has a lot more leverage than he otherwise would uh, if you just let the process work um, as, as it's intended, allow everyone to amend it. Then when the president or Mnuchin says, hey, we've got this great idea, the speaker uh, says, hey, that's fine, but I've got to run this through the whole house. And we're going to allow amendments on it too. So you can offer this idea. And guess what? We're going to allow some amendments to your idea. If someone wants to put an amendment to amend it, we're going to allow it. Now, People say to me when I say, let's open up the process, let's, um, let's allow amendments. Oh, this will take forever, Justin. This will, you'll slow everything down. Well, first of all, we, we spend a lot of time on things we don't need to be spending time on in Congress. I mean, there's like a lot of stuff that well, passes. Well, no, no, that, I just want to stop here for a second, Justin, and, and, and just joke that it's like, oh, because... Congress is such this model of legislative efficiency right now that if you were to right. allow amendments that you'd be interfering with this well-oiled machine that's just humming along. Right, like, exactly. <laughs> like anyone, anyone looking at it right now knows that Congress is not working efficiently under this model. This model of Mnuchin negotiates with Pelosi and McConnell is not efficient. It's taken months. Look at the, the COVID relief stuff. Relief bill, it's, yes. yeah. It's taken months and months to get anything. And then they just, they negotiate for a couple weeks. Then the president says something on Twitter. And then they're like, oh, we're, we're stop. We're going to stop negotiating now. And then 
He says, no, no, I changed my mind. And they start again. This has been going on um, for months, for months now. And if you just put legislation on the House floor and allow us all to participate, every single member, if Justin Amash has an idea, let me offer it. And, you know, I, I agree with you on some of this stuff. Like I would, my primary goal if I were working on COVID relief would be to get money directly to the people, to the direct people cash families, relief. Yes. That's the most important thing we can do. Uh, we spend so much time on, uh, you know, Mnuchin and Pelosi and McConnell. They're negotiating, you know, how to get the banks in the middle of it and how to yeah, and and sort of a lot of micromanagement at the top at like high levels. Just get cash to the people directly if you want relief to go quickly. I That's mean, just, what millions of Americans want. Uh, like millions of Americans right. do not care about anything except whether they're going to be able to pay for heating oil or rent or uh, gas right. in their We're, car. They're trying, to they micromanage. they're trying to micromanage everything at the top level. And for, for people, some people say, well, as a libertarian, shouldn't you be opposed to this? Well, the fact is there's going to be some sort of relief. And when we're crafting that relief as a libertarian, I want it to be the most libertarian form of relief possible, which is direct cash assistance. I don't want, um, I don't want banks all involved in everything. I don't want you know uh, new regulations everywhere. I want the the government to get money to the people and then get out of the way as much as possible. That's that's what I want as a libertarian. But like like I said, for people who say that. It'll slow down the process to offer amendments. It won't slow down the process. It will speed up the process. And, it will speed and you up know what process. else? You know what else happens? Every member of Congress then feels like they participated in the process. And so it brings them on board and brings their constituents on board with whatever the final package is. Because now you can say to your constituents, I offered an idea that you guys really wanted. My constituents wanted this thing. I went on the House floor and I offered it as an amendment, but it didn't pass. It failed. So this is the product that is the compromise of the House of Representatives. And a lot of members will then say, well, this is the best we can do. And this is something that I'd be willing to vote for. There are other members who say, no, I'm not willing to vote for it. And that's okay too. But the, the fact is we went through a process and we got something that uh, in a much better way reflects the will of the American people and reflects the representatives of the people. They're using their judgment on behalf of the people. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. 
That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Why do you think more has not been made of the fact that the legislative process now uh, shuts down the ability to amend? Um, Because at this point, it's been in effect since 2016. Uh, We can see some of the negative effects. People are very uh, upset about how uh, unresponsive Congress has been to crisis after crisis at this point. And COVID relief is the crisis of the moment. Uh, I have not heard that much in the press uh, beating up um, yeah. either Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi for shutting down amendments. And it seems like a fundamental problem. Would you agree, first of all, with the sense that this is somewhat underreported? Oh, it's it's way underreported. And I've, I've complained to reporters about it. I've said this is like, this is the big story. Because when I go to town halls and I talk to my constituents, and, um, and obviously we haven't been doing in-person town halls with the, with the COVID situation, but... Uh, back in the day, they would say to me, Justin, um, you know, the process is all fine and all. Like, it's it's nice that there's some procedural problems, but we care about the substance. We need to get this, this bill. And I say to them, you can't get that bill that you want. You can't get that idea that you want without a, an open process. There's no way for a member of Congress to bring that to the floor to offer it. So... It, it, there's this expectation that I, as a member of Congress, can go and just offer things and have votes on them. And that's just not true. Um, I can't even tweak bills. So let alone, I mean, forget the idea of offering my own bill. I can't even amend bills. So that is a real problem. And it's underreported, I think, because it's just not a sexy topic. Like really, because this strikes me as very, very know, sexy well, in the sense that it's very impactful. I mean, well, you, you uh, and I, yeah, you know, I think this is like in our uh, wheelhouse where you know, I'm to me, I'm like a procedure person. This is sort of how I think. I think about process um, because if you control the process, that has a big impact on the outcome. So the way the the um, leadership teams are controlling the process now in both the House and Senate. That impacts the outcome very directly. So all these people complaining about um, whatever bill or law they want to get done, and it could be COVID relief, it could be immigration law, it could be LGBTQ um, legislation, it could be um, other economic legislation. All of these things that you're concerned about, they don't go anywhere because we don't have an open process. So if there's one thing that I hope to do when I'm out of Congress is to try to um, spend time talking about this and, you know, coming on your podcast is one, one way to do it. I want to, I want to go on a lot of podcasts. I want to go out there and talk about this problem because it's at the heart of everything that's wrong in Congress. People who are watching this, 
they might not agree with me ideologically. I'm sure you disagree with me ideologically on a number of things. I'm, I'm a libertarian. I have, uh, you know, particular views about the structure of, of government that you might disagree with me on. But I, I would hope that we can all agree on following a process that allows everyone to participate so that the libertarian can offer ideas on the House floor. The progressive can offer ideas on the House floor. The conservative can offer ideas on the House floor. We want to bring all of these viewpoints to this magnificent body that was created in our country, this magnificent body to, uh, to legislate on behalf of the American people. We want to bring all of these viewpoints there and work to persuade each other. If you open up the process, I will do my best to persuade you of some of my libertarian ideas. I'm not asking you to agree with me, um, you know, point blank or yeah, or, just let me uh, pass the, the laws or whatnot. But just, at least let's let's talk about it. <laughs> just let me talk. Let me discuss the ideas and let AOC come to the floor and discuss progressive ideas, and let a conservative come to the floor and discuss conservative ideas. We should have that as a as a legislative body, and that's the expectation the American people should have. And then I will work to persuade you that my substantive views are right. But I can't do that until we fix the procedural process stuff. So why are, focus, why are more, why are more really members of Congress? Yeah, why are more members of Congress not banging the table on this? And I have a hunch. I mean, it has <laughs> yeah, something to I do did. with the performative aspects you talked about, which is if you go to the town hall and then people are like, hey, we need this and this. And like the, the easy thing to do, having been a candidate, um, though sometimes, you know, I mean, obviously I wasn't in office. So like, you know, in many ways, um, it was both easier and harder for me. But you say, yes, we have to get that done is like the easy thing to do. <laughs> right. um, the hard thing to do would be to say, and hey, I guess I, I have no input in that because we're the minority party right now. And uh, they have a closed legislative process. that doesn't even allow for amendments. So they just kind of <laughs> right. serve it up. And then we like, 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 like it's... I mean, it's very hard to present the second picture because it makes you seem uh, less like you're going to go back there and like do do the, you know, what they want you to do. Um, but it sounds like the second might be a more accurate picture for many. Yeah, I watch these. Um, I'm seeing all these campaign ads right now and everyone's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that because you have no power to do it. They're, the system isn't designed to let you do that. And And I get this pushback, too, because... You know, I'll be on Twitter and I'll be talking about the process and I'll be talking about um, about how it's broken. And people will say, uh, you know, why are you complaining on Twitter? Why don't you go do your job? Well, you know, I'm restricted in what I can do in my job. Uh, all the ideas that you want me to present to Congress, I can offer bills and I've introduced bills. I have the ending qualified immunity bill, for example. Um, I've introduced a number of bills that I know people would care about. On, on we should um, end qualified immunity. Yeah. By the way, I agree with you on that. So you know, <laughs> a lot, lot, lot of and, people agree. And and so and I've worked with Republicans. I've worked with Democrats. Uh, we have tripartisan legislation. We've got it all. So we have those things sitting out there, but they don't move, and amendments don't move because the process is broken. So we're we're sort of in this trap. And and you asked, well, why don't the um, um, members of Congress, you know, why don't they talk about this? And and the the sad truth is that the majority of them prefer this system. And 
you know, just to go through that a little bit, when you think about it, it's actually a pretty easy life for them. Okay, they they come to Congress. If they um, bend the knee for leadership and just say, we'll go along with whatever show you're doing, you know, you're putting on the Democrat show or you're putting on the Republican show or whatever, we'll go along with it. As long as they, um, you know, play along and do the performance, they are taken care of. They're babied. Um, and imagine someone, I, I try to frame it this way, where people say, Justin, why don't you run for speaker? Okay, well... Here's why they would never choose me as speaker. Because I would tell them, we're going to open up the process and you're going to have a lot of votes and these votes are going to be tough. They're going to put you on the spot. And instead of spending all my time fundraising for my particular party, which is how the speaker operates today, you know, a whole bunch of time is spent fundraising. That's like a big part of Pelosi's 30 to 70% of, 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 of uh, Congress members' time, according to one study. Yeah, and the speaker especially because the speaker raises more money than like all the members combined basically in 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 the uh, in the per- person's party. So like Pelosi can outraise basically all the Democrats, and Paul Ryan could basically outraise all the Republicans. Like if you added them all up, I think they'd probably add up to what the speaker raises. And that person can then dish out money and travel around the country. The speaker does that. So if I were running for speaker, I'd say, guess what? That's not going to be the focus of my work. My focus is going to be making sure the institution runs properly. It's not going to be out there raising money for my political party. If I were a Republican, for example, at the time, um, it's not going to be to go out there and raise money for Republicans or make sure Republicans win everywhere. I'm going to be focused on making sure this institution runs smoothly. And you know what the members of Congress would say to me who are going to vote for speaker? They'd say, well, no, thanks. Um, we don't want that kind of speaker. We want the speaker who tells us, <laughs> just, um, you know, give me your voting card and I'll take care of everything for you. If you get attacked in your district or you get a primary challenge, we're there for you. We'll, we'll spend millions of dollars to protect you. Um, if you uh, vote with the speaker, we'll give you whatever committee assignment you want. They, they prefer that system. It's an easy life. Uh, when I go to the House floor, on average, I would say the members of Congress, most of them, uh, 90%, do not actually know what we're voting on. Like, they know some rough idea of what the bill is. Like, they might know it's about a particular topic, but they actually don't know the workings of the legislation. And there's no one holding them accountable because the the media today, the way the media work, they work on such a... Uh, uh, short time scale, they have to move things really quickly, that they also don't know anything about the legislation. So there's nobody to hold them accountable. If, if someone says something that's incorrect about the legislation, the media don't know what to say in response. They don't, even, they don't even respond to it. They just take people's word for it. If Pelosi says this is what the bill is or, or McConnell says this is what the bill is, for the most part, the media say, yeah, that's basically what it does. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This is a very dark picture you've painted, Justin. Um, I, I have gotten glimpses of the dark picture from other people, so this is not totally unfamiliar. I'm not shocked at this description. Uh, so let's go through, because you and I are both solutions-oriented types. Um, what are like the handful of big changes we could make that would improve matters? Number one, uh, it sounds like obviously returning to the pre-2016 uh, open process mm-hmm. where anyone can file an amendment and discuss. Yeah, and that uh, wasn't, two- to be clear, just to, just to be clear, that wasn't on every piece of legislation. It used to be even more open in the past. I think... Gingrich um, started to consolidate power and things started to change. But nonetheless, it was a lot better pre-2016 than it is now. Yeah, it's not absolute. It's a matter of degree, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, Number two is uh, some greater form of accountability uh, where, like, so that could be through the media, that could be um, putting pressure on speakers to actually let members of Congress uh, have input, do their jobs. One of the things that I suggested, I'd love to hear your perspective on, is I thought we should bring back earmarks. And I don't know if there were ever earmarks during your 10 years in Congress. Uh, But to me, it just made sense that if you were going to try and get a deal done, uh, it's sort of helpful to have something to offer someone that they can bring back to their constituents and say, hey, you know, I got on board with this. And you know what? We got out of it this. (laughs) We got out of it. I know there you're you're, been, you're anti yeah. uh, government expenditure generally, so you might have a different perspective. Uh, but I I thought it was like an effective way to just encourage legislation. There haven't been earmarks um, during my time in Congress because uh, because Boehner put a stop to them. But um, you're right that it's uh, more aligned with the way Congress is supposed to work. In other words, um, the members come to the House floor and they offer the ideas. The, the problem with them, and I haven't come up with a good way to resolve it, is that it was sort of like a, uh, it became like a race to spend money. Like everyone was offering every pet project under the sun and a lot of them were going through. And so you had this escalation in spending and it was, it, it got to the point where um, people would say, I'll vote for your spending if you vote for my spending. And then everyone goes home and they say, we got it all. You know, I, yeah, the bill is expensive, but I got my stuff. And, and then their constituents are happy because they got the you know, train station or whatever it might be in their district. So um, you know, I'm, not, I'm not ready to get back on board with the earmarks, but I do think that we need to have more input from the members. And... Um, and, you know, I, having it where the members are just offering special pet projects is, is like not my thing. Um, I don't part of it has to do with like a, a philosophical issue I have with how um, government spending should work. I feel like uh, 
uh, if it's a particularly like local or parochial project, it should happen at a lower level of government, not at the federal level. Um, if you want something in your district, that's something that maybe your district should focus on. Uh, you know, you can raise it locally or at the state level rather than at the federal level. And we got to the point with earmarks where a lot of really local there, there things was, were being I know, handled. We all know, like and, the bridges to nowhere. We've heard the bad, yeah, the bad and, ones. And, <laughs> and so there's, there's, not a good, um, there's not a good way to resolve that right now. So what are the other mechanisms for improvement? I'm trying to imagine a functional I, legislature yeah, I, and, uh, and how the mechanics would work. I have one um, really good one that would make a difference. Um, again, everything's at the margins, but it would make a difference, which is um, something I, I call the Readable Legislation Act. When I was, and this is a bill that I, I introduced. I like it already. <laughs> when, yeah. So when I was in the state legislature, um, reading bills was, was rather simple because when you'd get a piece of legislation, it looked like track changes in a, uh, like a word document. So you'd, you'd see the underlying law and if they wanted to change something in the law, you'd see where they crossed things out or inserted things. And it was all really readable. You, it was like, uh, like I said, like track changes. I get to Congress and I realized they're not doing it that way at all. Everything is like on um, page seven, line three, you know, insert before the word the, you know, this portion. And the bills end up being um, sometimes 1,000, 2,000 pages. And a lot of it is just gobbledygook cross-references, that no member of Congress could really sit down and read through, even if like someone says they can read through a thousand pages, like, like let's suppose you were a speed reader and, and in the short time they give you maybe a day, maybe two days, three, three days, if you're lucky to read a thousand pages, maybe you're a speed reader. You still couldn't get through the cross references because it's just a thousand pages on this document, but the document is referencing other things. And so you'd have to go and read the other things and figure out how it all fits together. Um, so I have something called the Readable Legislation Act, which would um, require the legislation to be produced in a readable form where it looks like track changes so that someone could just look at the surrounding text and see what is crossed out, what is inserted, rather than having to do all this, all sorts of cross-references, it would make the bills much easier to read. And I can attest to this from my own personal experience. I served in the state house where it worked that way, and I served in Congress, and there is no comparison. I could, um, I could get through those state house bills really quickly because I could see exactly what was going on, and I could understand the context. It was, it was just much simpler. And the way this would be, help, would be helpful to Congress is that a lot of the um, stuff that happens right now where members uh, sort of get pressed by leadership, they, they often plead like a sort of like um, ignorance and it's like a willful sort of ignorance. Like they, they accept that it's just too difficult to follow all this stuff. And so they're saying, well, the leaders are telling us this is what it does. And rather than spending all my time researching it, I'm going to accept that that's what it does, and I'm going to vote on the basis that it does what they are telling me it does. 
if you could make the legislation really easy to read, it would be a lot harder for those people to plead that way, to say like, well, I have no clue what it does. I could show them then a piece of paper and say, look, it, it inserts this and it crosses this out. It's actually quite simple and you're voting the wrong way on it. Like you could, you could get people to understand and come to terms with what's actually happening in a way that you, you can't right now. It's just they, they sort of um, use the com- complexity as an excuse to give up their own thinking. And then you have offices like mine and my, my poor staff, the, the stuff I put them through to, <laughs> to read all these bills and cross like everything. We have to check all the cross references and make sure everything is exactly right. And then I have to understand it fully. And um, my staff are probably doing, uh, you know, compared to an average staff, maybe 10 times the amount of work um, just to get it in the right format and to get the right understanding. I'm all and for the Readable we, Legislation Act, yeah. Justin. That sounds like a great necessary idea. Yeah, and we and we have to this day like when when someone tells you it's too complicated, you know something's not good. <laughs> right, it's you not know? good. And and there are bills, and the sad part is there are bills that pass Congress, and we've had um, several of them over the past year, where. Um, I voted no on it because it had problems and other people voted yes. And the media and my colleagues don't even know what the bill does. And if you show them what it does, if you actually show them and work through it, they're all like, yeah, you're absolutely right. But it never gets any traction that way before the vote. You don't have time to show all of them before the vote. You have to sometimes, you know, you have only one day or two days a lot of them only realize it afterwards. And I've even called out the media on some of this stuff and said, I've pointed out to media that their headlines are totally wrong and their stories are wrong. And I'm talking about m- mainstream media, New York Times, Washington Post, or even things like CNN, Fox News, on the right and on the left. I've, I've told them, you got your story wrong. This is not what the bill does. I've shown them. And they can't refute what I'm saying but it's too late. The story's already run and they can't backtrack. Justin, among the other members of Congress, because you've been around, um, you know, uh, in, in the chambers, who else is similarly uh, disgusted with the current state of affairs and wants to clean up the mechanics? Like, who are the other members of Congress who are like, well, if they were in charge and they would actually be like, look, let's try and make this place work again. So, um, there are a lot of them who talk privately about this. And, you know, I'm not sure I want to go through all the names of my colleagues on this, but I would say that it's a, it's a minority of Congress. In other words, you have maybe um, a, a couple dozen to maybe 50 members who really care about this and would really welcome this kind of change. Uh, maybe maybe even up to 100 members out of the 435 who would welcome the change, even if some of them aren't that focused on it. Uh, and then the rest of them, over 300, who would not welcome making it um, actually a more open process or making the legislation more readable. Um, that's why we get pushback on this stuff. You know, like I, I offer um, something like, a, like you think a readable legislation bill would be kind of a no brainer, but you know, you get pushback on it. I would think so. Most <laughs> yeah. Americans would think so. Right. But, but you get pushback. So there are people, and I wouldn't say it's um, a partisan thing. Uh, it's, it's across the aisle. 
I know, um, for example, I'll just give you one prominent one uh, because it's it's not a secret or anything. AOC has many, many times um, echoed my tweets or liked some of my tweets where I've talked about this broken process. I think she'd welcome something more open. Um, I believe so that. So it's, it's not an ideological – it's not like an ideological thing. No, no. Thing. It, it, it's, it's something else. It, it's like an integrity it, thing. Right. And, and um, she's a, another, another example of um, – Someone who I've been impressed with in, in the sense that she she votes what she believes. Um, I can't speak to that on every single vote, but I have seen a number of votes where she has been willing to buck her party, and that matters. That matters. Whether you agree with her ideologically or not, and I certainly have a lot of disagreements with her and other areas where we agree. So I don't want to want to say it's you know all disagreements. There are lots of areas where we do, would agree. But... Um, but at least I feel when she votes, she's, she's doing it out of a place of integrity. She is staying true to what she told her constituents she would do. And I respect that. And I think that we need more legislators like that. It doesn't matter whether they are right or left. I just want people who are honest. I want a, a whole bunch of progressives and a whole bunch of libertarians and a whole bunch of conservatives. Let's put us all together and let's work through the issues in an open and honest way. And, um, oh, and there are so those members out there, but they're just, there's just not that many, unfortunately, because the system, the system eats them up. Wow. Uh, so you've been a member for 10 years now. How do you feel about term limits? I support term limits. And I don't think they're, um, you know, it's, it's been said and it's kind of cliche. It's not a panacea or anything. It's not like, um, it's not going to fix the problem. Magically fix everything, yeah. Yeah. And because some people talk about it like it's, you know, this is like the big problem in Congress is is a lack of term limits. I don't think that's right. I think that term limits would what, help, though. What what uh, duration would you suggest for the House? I'd say um, 12 years for the House. So uh, what because to, do, to put term limits in place, you have to amend the Constitution. So... Uh, if I were in charge of amending the Constitution, which I'm not, but if I were in charge of it, what I would, what, what I would do is I do um, three four-year terms. I would change them from two-year terms to four-year terms. At, two at two years seems very brief because you have to run essentially all the time. Yeah. At the, at the founding of the country, when you had um, the federal government a lot smaller – and um, when people just came to Congress for a few months at a time and then they left, you know, the sessions were much shorter. You'd come, you'd come here for, you know, one, two, three months, and then you'd go home and, and be a farmer or a smith or whatever you might be. Um, it's, it's sort of like the opposite now where um, back then, actually, in one, in this, it's the opposite in another important respect. Back then, your main job was whatever trade or craft or practice you sure. did. So like if you were a far using a farmer as an example, that's what you were. And then you were a Congress, you were a congressman maybe on the side. Um, today, it's the opposite. We're not allowed to work in other jobs. So if you're a member of Congress, you're actually not allowed to earn a salary from another job. There's a limit. There's a, a, a pretty strict limitation on it. So basically, Congress is your full-time job. And what ends up happening in a world like that 
um, with these elections every two years and Congress running, you know, year round uh, and in a sense, 24 seven now with the Internet. Right. So with Congress running year round, 24 seven, there are members who are wasting, um, you know, like a, a year campaigning in the sense of, um, you know, they're out there. And I say wasting in the sense that they're out there raising money and they're not actually doing their work. So all the problems we talked about earlier about how members of Congress sort of mail it in and go along with leadership, well, this this adds to it because now they have an, an additional incentive um, with two-year terms. So we got to get they got to get out and campaign. Um, it creates a real incentive to not spend time on the legislation. I spend time on legislation that uh, most people are never going to even hear about. And we might spend so much office time on it. You know, my staff and I, we're working on like some kind of uh, obscure land transfer in a, in a Western state. And it doesn't impact that many people directly, but my staff and I are spending time on it. Well, a lot of members of Congress are going to say, we're not going to spend any time on that. Why would we spend time focused on a, on a land transfer? We'll just let the leadership tell us how to vote and, um, and we'll go out and campaign. Yeah. So make it make it four years. If you make it four year terms, you reduce some of that campaigning, which I think is helpful. So three, four year terms um, in the House and I would do two six year terms in the Senate. Yeah, I'm for 12 year terms in both houses, too. And if someone's awesome, maybe they can do both. And they're there for 24 years. So, you know, people are like, oh, you're getting rid of great people. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're getting rid of some not so great ones, too. <laughs> oh, I also yeah. have a feeling, too, like, yeah, you know, it's like if if. <laughs> Um, that there'd be more uh, good than than not good um, from that kind of shift. Uh, the two numbers that I'm throwing out there to the public, Justin, around this set of phenomenon you just described, congressional approval rating as a body, 21%. Re-election rate of individual members, 94%. You know, so like, <laughs> so, so everyone yeah. was there being like, hey, let me... Uh, Make sure I get reelected, and and then like the overall performance is actually not that material to uh, my my reelection prospects. And I see this all the time. By the way, I see this all the time in funny ways. Like I'll be on Twitter, and someone will say, "My uh, my favorite representatives are," and then they'll list like uh, a few who are kind of well known, and and maybe ones that even I think are pretty good ones, and then they'll list their own representative. And I'll be like, that guy is like not this. He's not the same as these the other. Like this is a <laughs> right. But, but people think that their own representative is great. And I think it, again, it has to do with like sort of the, the messaging back home and people falling for it. And it's not the fault of people at home. They're busy. They've got their, you know, they're, they're super busy with their lives. Um, I think probably people actually know, uh, more today about politics than they ever did in the past. So I, I don't want to criticize people at home for not knowing. Um, but it no, is it's the same thing, is, Justin. If you ask people like, hey, are your jobs going to get automated away? They'll be like, are a majority of jobs? Yes. My job? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> so exactly. Like, so members of Congress, so it's like it's, my guys are, are, are women's awesome. But yeah. 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 It's, they, they tend to think that their own member of Congress is really good. And I don't know what to make of that other than like, you know, that's that shows that the performance works, you know, the the theater works. They they fall for it. And 
it's not their fault. You know, people have only so much time in their days. They're busy with their own lives and they can't, they can't know much about, um, the members of Congress. They're not going to do all their own individual research. You know, they're, they're going to follow what they saw in their local news or, you know, they, they saw the, the member at a coffee house somewhere and they, they liked the person. And I think sure. a lot of times that's, yeah, you know, they'll just like the person personally. Um, but liking the person personally does not translate to the person being a good member of Congress. I mean, they, there are lots of really likable people who are terrible members of Congress. And, you know, there are actually a few unlikable people who are really good members of Congress. So it's, <laughs> I don't want to name names here either, but, but there just are. There are some people who are not that charismatic and not that likable. And I, I look at them and I'm like, oh, this is a pretty good member of Congress. You know, not flashy, um, but they, they get the job done. And I can tell the person really understands things and is working hard. There are different qualities and capacities uh, between being a candidate and running and then actually yeah, and doing legislating and doing the work. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a whole nother conversation. And like, it's like a significant problem, actually, in our system. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Uh, I, I was... Um, uh, someone who is like very very keyed in on your uh, your exploratory committee when you were looking at running as a libertarian i'm sure many libertarians were pumped um that and then uh you had a, a period that i actually could relate to and understand um when you were exploring um what was that like and, and i'm just going to preface this by saying i think running for president is a very patriotic and service-oriented and courageous thing to do particularly for someone like you who are clearly doing it for the right reasons um, and there's so much negativity that surrounds you when you decide to make that decision where like when I decided to run pretty much 80% of the questions I got, um, if I could even get anyone to ask me a question, which is like, you know, the, like the other problem, um, was why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, like, like very, uh, kind of negative stuff. Um, so I just wanted to ask you uh, briefly about what your experience was like um, during that time, like sort of the the best and the worst or the highs and the lows. Yeah. Well, first, I want to say your run was very impressive and was very inspiring to a lot of people. Um, I, I think whatever ideological differences anyone may have, and I'm sure we have some as well, but, um, you know, the way you... Uh, you presented yourself and the way you tried to do things differently was um, just remarkable and it stood out. 
and um, and that's why I think you uh, you had the popularity you had and had the success you had, and and I think that you do have a future if if you want to run for office again. I think you could be very successful at this um, because you have what it takes, and I I think that's what I think people want that that independence that you have. Um, so thank you, Justin. It's very I, kind of you. I would say. I would say um, they, you know, they want that independence. They are, they're so trapped in the mindset of like, we have to go with what we know. But deep down, they want that. It just, it's just a matter of someone like you breaking through, just reaching a critical mass. And then um, I think it then just takes off. So I just want to say that first of all. But um, what I would say for... For me, it was a matter of looking at um, two candidates who I thought, whatever you know, whatever you may think of the candidates, and I know there are people who uh, adore Joe Biden, and I know there are people who are really devoted to Donald Trump. I know that, and people will tell me, especially on the left, um, Joe Biden is an honest man, and um, he has integrity that Donald Trump doesn't have, and that's what we need right now. We we have to have that. Um, my issue is I don't think that Joe Biden resolves the problems that I'm talking about. You know, and it's it's not just a problem of the legislative branch; it's a problem of the executive branch too, because they interact with each other, and how they interact makes a difference. The president can force the legislative branch to start acting appropriately simply by refusing to sign certain things or refusing to take executive action where he or she doesn't think he or she has executive action, like executive power. Um, So the president has a lot of impact on, on what goes on in Congress and a lot of impact on the things I'm talking about that are problematic. And, and I saw it sort of heading to a Joe Biden-Donald Trump matchup, and I thought, actually, that's a pretty good matchup and will allow me to present the contrast that I need to present to get some of these ideas off the ground. I think it's, it's good to have two candidates who are sort of in the same camp, in some sense at least. I don't mean that they're identical like in terms of their integrity or anything like that, like that. but I mean they come from the same generation and—, and um, uh, there's a little bit of a, uh, as much as Trump presents himself as different, he's like kind of status quo in many respects. Like uh, the establishment are the biggest winners from a Trump presidency, the establishment Republicans. Um, and, and nobody loves Donald Trump more than the establishment Republicans. This is hard for people at home, I think, to relate to because they see the Lincoln Project and, and all these other things going on. But actually, the establishment Republicans in D.C., they love Donald Trump. Oh, so you get really? I mean, that's kind of a surprise to most of us. So you get, oh yeah, like who's a bigger cheerleader for him than like Kevin McCarthy um, or even Mitch McConnell? Because this is sort of, now we're on a tangent a little bit, but I'll, I'll go there. Um, the A lot of these establishment Republicans, they had um, a certain set of ideas that, you know, many people were opposed to, including me. Um, who were Republicans. You know, Republicans didn't even like some of their ideas, uh, many Republicans. And the problem they faced was that they could never sell it to the public, right? Because the public was listening to conservatives. The The public was influenced by a lot of um, sort of, um, you know, 
free market, um, constitutional conservative types. And in order to overcome that, the establishment sort of needed its own weapon. And they got that weapon in Donald Trump, a guy who could basically make Republican grassroots not care about conservatism anymore and only care about winning. Because the establishment's message all the time on the Republican side was winning is what matters. Um, conservative, our principles don't really matter that much. It's about winning. And now they have their man in Donald Trump who gives them the grassroots and still gives them what they need. I mean, the policies that are being enacted in Washington are not conservative policies. They are not definitely not free market policies. They're definitely not what I would call, you know, traditionally, um, they're not constitutional policies, that's for sure. So, uh, or limited government policies. So it, really it's like anathema to like a lot of what Republicans said they stood for. And now the establishment has their man in Donald Trump. So that's a, that's a big tangent. And I think it's maybe, um, yeah, no, yeah, important. something a lot of people don't think about, but like, you know, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the house, they love Donald Trump because he gets them what they need. Um, so, uh, anyways, you have these two candidates who I thought were not that far apart in terms of, you know, their generational perspectives and, and I thought I could present a contrast and I wanted to start earlier, but then, um, you had the impeachment stuff come up and I did not want to be the impeachment candidate. That was not my desire. I never wanted to be, um, Justin Amash running for president on impeachment. I didn't want to be involved in impeachment. I voted the the right way. I voted the way I believed, but um, I wasn't interested in making impeachment. Making that a big your thing. issue, yeah, clearly. Like, that's not yeah. my thing. That's like not like yeah. I, you know. I'm a process guy. I, I care about um, you know criminal justice reform and spending, and other, I care about a lot of things. Impeachment is not like what I'm running on. Okay, so yeah. I never wanted that to be the thing. So I had to hold off. Then sometime around, oh, January, February, I started to think, you know, okay, impeachment's in the past now. And then COVID hit. And I was like, well, it's not the right time. Yeah, no, it would have been impossible in co in the world of COVID, uh, you know, like. Uh... Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, I decided around... Um, it, then I ran at the problem with the Libertarian Convention being in May, which was such a short time period that I had to just make, I had to make a decision, right? If I didn't make a decision by the end of April, it was going to be too late. And, and so I made a decision. I jumped in with the exploratory committee with the understanding that I was like testing the waters, essentially. I was, I wanted to get like a, a genuine exploratory committee. Yeah. Yeah. People, because <laughs> people were surprised. They're like, I can't believe he's not running. I was like, well, it's actually really an exploratory committee. I'm just exploring this. And for people who say, well, didn't you know that you wouldn't get enough traction? Um, because, because I didn't want to run just for the fun of it. I wasn't running to get 5% even or something like that, you know, which would have been the most libertarians had in the presidential race. I wasn't even, I, that wasn't my interest. My interest is if you run, you run to win. You're not, you don't get involved um, to be a sideshow or to be accused of being like a spoiler for either side. You're running to win this thing. And people say, well, didn't you know you couldn't win it? And 
like all things in life, I don't think that's that's just not the way my mind works. Um, you you uh, could I think never I'm, I'm, know anything until you actually <laughs> did something. Yeah, I'm yeah. A, I feel like okay. I, I look at the two candidates, Trump and Biden. I feel like I'm as capable as they are. Uh, I think I'm more capable, but you know whatever it might be, I'm as capable. So I look I look at the the opposition and I look at the landscape and I think, look, you don't know until you try it. You How do you know what's going to happen? People, I think a lot of people miss out on opportunities in life where they could be successful and make a difference because they're afraid to try. And I, I admired never, it on that level very naturally, Justin, because I 100% agree with you that you cannot know until you actually put yourself out there. Uh, and putting yourself out there is an act of courage and integrity. You. And like, like and, you genuinely believe that you can be of service and contribute. And you know, you've you've done a lot of stuff, so there's no, like no reason to think otherwise. And and this is this is the approach I've taken in life that you have to try things, and there's no harm in not succeeding and in, in saying like I tried it. And still married, I, still have a I beautiful rec- family. Still right. Are- That's exactly right. I, I recognized it wasn't going in the direction that I wanted. Like I couldn't get off the ground the way I wanted to. And so I said, I'm not going to go forward with it. But <clears throat> I've always tried these things. When I ran for state house, just to go back to that, people thought I had no chance. No chance. And, <clears throat> and I walked door to door and met with all my constituents. And... I remember a month before the primary election, there were articles being written about the state house race that didn't even include me in the article. In other words, they thought I had such a low chance of success that I wasn't even mentioned as a candidate in the race. And I won that um, first house race, the state house race, by a pretty substantial margin. You know, I I got um, 40 something percent in a five way race. And, and so I did the same thing when I ran for Congress. People said, you had no chance. You have no chance. The first poll that had me for Congress, like when I was, when I first jumped into it, I was down, I don't know, it was like 30% to 6% or 7%. I I was way down in in another, like, uh, I think it was a five-way race, but I stuck with it and I won that congressional race. Um, because I believed, I saw a path and I believed that I could do it. This time I felt I had to make the effort too. I had to try it. But this time, unlike those times, I didn't see the path. I love it, Justin. It's such an important perspective that you bring to the table. I've learned a lot from you over this past hour or so. Uh, so I think you've already answered what was to be my final question, which is like, what does the future hold for, for you um, but so I'm going to, to switch questions and we're going to close it on something that I think is going to be important to people. I believe Trump's going to lose this election. I think most people know that that's what I think. Um, and, and so what do you forecast as the future of the Republican Party post-Trump? So, you know, it's... I, I think that um, Trumpism doesn't go away anytime soon. And I'm not as... Um, confident that Biden will win as you are, I think it's likely that Biden will win as opposed to 2016, where I I thought actually Trump would win in 2016. I got that sense ahead of time. And I was telling people in my district because I had um, 
I had constituents who were upset with me as a Republican. They said, Justin, um, how come you're out there, you know, bad-mouthing our nominee and, and criticizing him and all this stuff? And I said, look, I don't, I don't like Donald Trump. I don't think he's a good nominee for our party. Um, but I, I still think he's going to win. So, like, I don't think you have much to worry about. I, that's, I, got a, I got a feeling from just doing town halls and various events. This time I don't have that same feeling that he's going to win like I did before. But I don't know. Anything's possible. I'm not, I'm not um, one of these people who's going to say, like, it's not possible. We've seen it all. So it, it's possible he could win. If he, if he wins, I'll start with that. If he wins, it's obvious the Republican Party just continues in that direction. There's no escaping it, right? Um, and in fact, they're going to double down on it because they're going to say, look, it's a winning it's a winning approach. So if we want to win, we do this, and then um, Republicans get the Supreme Court justices that they want, et cetera, et cetera. So they're like, this is a winning approach. Let's stick with it. Um, if, uh, and I think in that case, the Democratic Party has a problem. I think the Democratic Party, if they lose, will maybe implode because it is hard. It will be very hard for some of the progressives who have made peace with um, sort of the uh, Biden camp and more of the establishment Democrats to justify the relationship going forward. If two elections in a row against um, one of the worst presidents in history, if two elections in a row they lost, they're going. I think they're going to have to have a um, just a reckoning where they say, "Look, I don't know that this is the right." Oh, that that might that might be necessary <laughs> if if what you're describing happens, which obviously, yeah. Like, I, <laughs> so, again, so, 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 so let's go. So to let's the, go to the. I'll the, go to the other one. Okay, I'll go to the other one. I yeah. don't want to be too like. So if Trump loses, I don't think Trump. Trump and I think that again is the more likely outcome. I want to be clear. I think that is the more likely outcome. I don't think it goes away. It's not like Donald Trump's going to stop tweeting. I mean, I don't think Trump loses and he's like, "I see you guys later." Um, you know, this is my last tweet, and like he's going to he's going to keep tweeting. And he's got I don't know how many uh, eighty something million followers on Twitter, and he's got a whole bunch on Facebook and elsewhere. I, he's going to keep that message out there, and there's there's a whole industry built around Trumpism, essentially, on the right, and they can't overnight just like you know disband that industry. Um, I don't think they're going to be like, hey, Trump lost um, Mitt Romney 2024. I, I don't think it's going to be like that. They're going to you know that Republican Party is gone and it's not coming back, and. To be fair, I don't think the previous Republican Party was a good one either. I think it had a lot of problems and it helped lead to Donald Trump. So I don't want to go back to the, um, I'm not a Republican anyways, but I wouldn't want the Republican Party to go back to the pre-Donald um, Trump Republican Party. It has to be something totally different. But the sad reality is I think it's probably going to stick with Trumpism I think it's basically at its core now what I would call a national populist party. I don't think it's a conservative party. Um, it's definitely not a libertarian party. And it's, it's just a, it's about nationalism. It's about populism. Um, a lot of it is identity politics, which is ironic. You know, when you think about it, like <laughs> the Republicans were for years – 
decrying identity politics on the left. And I feel like the Republican Party today is basically identity politics. Like that's that's how it works. It's um, it's very like uh, it's culturally conservative in a sense, even though it's not fiscally conservative, it's not constitutionally conservative. The the part of conservatism that it's retained is a cultural conservatism. And um, and so I think you have that for some time to come, which presents an opportunity, I believe, for the Libertarian Party. It presents an opportunity for maybe some other party, um, not necessarily um, the Libertarian Party, but it could be another party altogether. It does present an opportunity for maybe some kind of centrist party or a, uh, a party. And the Libertarian Party, I believe, can be that centrist party, by the way. I, just, I want to put that out there. Um, it, so it, it opens up opportunities to win over voters who are not part of these two parties and do not feel well represented by the Republicans or Democrats. And and so I look forward to to hopefully being a part of that movement, growing something that is different. And I'm not under any illusion. Like I understand how how elections work. I understand that you have throughout history had two dominant parties. It hasn't always been Republicans and Democrats, but yeah, no, we there used to be I the Whigs. That. Like things have yeah. changed. There's like nothing. There's I, nothing in the Constitution being like there should right. be two parties. <laughs> I get like, that. I so so there there have always been two dominant parties, but they've been different parties over time. And we've had Republicans and Democrats for a long time. There's no reason that um, some other party couldn't become a dominant party and the Republicans fade into obscurity. Or, or maybe um, even the Democrats fade into obscurity. You just don't know. Um, with the way these two parties are just not reflective of the public at large, I think, it's a possibility. And especially the Republican Party right now, I think, is not very reflective of a large swath of America. I, mean, I, I have many friends who uh, have been Republicans who don't like Trump and now are, feel themselves to be politically uh, orphaned. Uh, you yeah. know, so the, so that there are a lot of folks that resemble what you just described. Um, and I think I saw some poll recently that said said that uh, put support for a third party at um, record highs or multi-decade highs, mm-hmm. something along those lines. So you're right. You're right about the fact that there is um, there's a void being left for many people. Yeah. And my dream would be a future where we don't have political parties. I don't think there is necessary in modern times where we have this kind of communication, where we have social media, where anyone can find out about anyone just by looking them up. You don't need to know which party I'm in. What difference does it make? What like what you know why do I, I have I just, why do I have to have a party? Like what <laughs> why can't I just, I just say who I am and what for, I believe? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm Justin. I just did an event for ranked choice voting, uh, which I imagine it sounds yeah, like you're yep. you're probably for. Yeah, I would support. Um, I haven't spent time working through all the details of ranked choice voting, but I think something like ranked choice voting has to um, be expanded across the country. I'm a fan of ranked choice voting uh, in part because of, of what you're describing, where it just make things more dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, people would be able to vote for an individual and not have anyone browbeat them and say like, <laughs> right. hey. Uh, <laughs> like hey you're like quote unquote wasting your vote and you're like well right you know rank choice voting just like my, my person doesn't win it'll just get slide over to the next person anyway uh so uh well justin 
such a pleasure connecting with you. Uh, I don't think anyone can say that you're not a person of principle and integrity after everything that you've done. You were the lone person in your party to stand up and vote for impeachment, even though it wasn't your issue and you didn't want to be defined by it. (laughs) But, but 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 that to me was like the thing that helped define you for many people where um, you did something that required genuine integrity and leadership in a time when it seems like both of those are in short supply. So Thanks. hats off to you. I hope you enjoy not being a candidate this cycle. Uh, I do. I, I know. I also <laughs> I also know what it's like to be a parent with um, young children. So you know, like um, yeah. I'm sure the family's happy to have you around. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really appreciate your having me on. It's been a fun time, and and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Now, Justin, we'll remain connected because, you know, you're a patriot. You want to solve some of these uh, procedural problems that are actually are threatening to destroy us. Like these are not like, oh, like, you know, like small problems. I mean, these are the problems that make solving every problem more difficult or impossible. Yeah. And I think I think we have to think outside the box even more. I think um, things like working together, like the two of us and others who have made an impact as more independent-minded um, candidates. I think a lot of us need to work together to do more to um, break the duopoly a little bit, to shake it up a little bit. Um, whether you're a Democrat or not, you know, I, I understand um, you ran as a Democrat, but you recognize the problems we're facing um, as a country. And the problems and you recognize don't really care problems. about what party you are. Yeah. The problems and, don't care. And I think, I think that the two of us and many others, there are lots of us out there who have a voice and 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 are fighting for um, independent thinking and new ways of thinking. And I think we have to work together more to to get that across, even if we have different ideologies in many respects, even if like, you know, one's a libertarian and one's a progressive or whatever it might be, we all have to work together to make changes. Yeah, just to be able to maintain also your own independent judgment where yeah. like I appreciate when people say it's like look like I think they got it wrong like they're theoretically like you know my party's leader but that doesn't mean like you can't just disagree with someone or that's right um uh or criticize or say like look because I think you opened up this conversation saying it's like um that part of being a leader I think is being able to accept a degree of difference uh and and like that, this reverence you're talking about, it's like, you know, reverence doesn't mean uh, just follow everything I say and do. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you, <laughs> you should still have your own independent perspective. And if I'm a good leader, I want to hear it. Uh, and, yep. you know, if you have enough of that, that's healthy. Um, certainly, you've been a role model in this direction, Justin. Really excited to connect. And don't worry, you and I are going to be at this for a while because we have young kids and we have to do what we can to leave this country in fighting shape for them. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. Appreciate the heck out of you. Yeah, take care.